So hello and welcome to the AV Forums podcast. I'm editor Phil Hinton and joining me on this edition this evening is assistant editor Steve Withers. And since we let our first class passengers do pretty much whatever they want. Games editor Mark Botwright. He's losing his mind. Movies editor Simon Crust. I let him look at my boot at the Christmas party last year. News editor Mark Hodgkinson. See? Billy Idol gets it. And audio reviewer Ed Selly. Sir, one more outburst and I'll strangle you with my microphone wire. So getting into things straight away, uh, Sony and Panasonic, we reported this about two weeks ago on the podcast, uh, they finally went into profit and their share prices went up, um, but also on top of that, Panasonic have stopped making plasma TVs and Sony have decided that they're going to spin off their TV division, Mark. Absolutely, the uh, financial results were just published uh, at the end of back end of last week uh, and they came out with... A kind of surprise announcement, we'll skim past this, but they're selling off the Veo PC business um, to an outside investor, so they're completely washing their hands of that, um, concentrating on uh, mobiles, you know, tablets and, f- and smartphones. Uh, and as you say, they're, spinning, they're going to make the TV business a wholly owned subsidiary of Sony um, because it doesn't fit with their new three key pillars, as it were, um, which are um, imaging, gaming and mobile. Uh, basically, they've been losing hemorrhaging money for the last three or four years. Sony is a TV division, uh, and obviously, to make the um, balance, make the books look a bit better uh, to the investors and, and to the board, um, they are making the uh, Bravia TV business completely separate to the uh, main operation, and the concentration going forwards will be on the high end of the market, uh, 4K sets mostly. Uh, one, one would surmise from that, um, and I think it's something we didn't see them. We didn't see it coming as a, as a business decision, but we we noticed uh, from uh, from CES and from uh, EFA that uh, that they really kind of washing their hands of the low end of the market. So uh, yeah, basically now if you're going to buy a Sony TV, it's going to be a pricey one. Um, uh, yeah, and that, that's that really. Seems like a strange decision. Obviously, we have seen this happen with other companies in the past. Toshiba, most of their stuff's now made by Vestel, and the main one was Philips, who sold their TV division off to uh, TP Vision. They kept some of that company, but they've recently sold it all now to TP Vision. So the only thing that you'll see on the TVs is a Philips brand name. Philips has nothing to do with TVs. Obviously, the last TV company I remember who said. We're going to concentrate on high margin, high end TVs. Was Pioneer, and yep. <laughs> <laughs> we know what happened there. I, I think when you set up a subsidiary company like this, there's only one reason to do that, and that's to spin it off and sell it later. Uh, I would bet a farm that Sony will sell that division at some point. Yeah, um, that's the only reason to do what they've just done. Well, plus it gets it gets it off the main books. No, well, it doesn't get off so. the main. I mean, it's still on the balance sheet as a subsidiary company, but it just means it's much easier to divest yourself of it later. So I'll bet you they sell it. Um, and I guess that's not a surprise. We were talking about it two weeks ago. We were saying we thought that at least one of the Japanese manufacturers would pull out of TV manufacturing entirely. I mean, we were going more in the direction of Panasonic, I think, in that discussion. Um, I'm surprised that Sony, you know, I, I thought Sony might get a bit longer because they've made so much stock of the fact that they can deliver every aspect of 4K from capture to delivery. Um, yeah, and, the, and they turned it around quite a bit. I mean, three years ago, they were losing, uh, I think, £900 million pounds in a year 
Uh, last year, the forecast, well, the end of this current financial year, they're, they're forecast to lose 15 million. So they've turned it around quite a lot. Yeah, true. I th- they just I doesn't seem to have the patience to, to see it through. I don't know. I think maybe it's also, you know, they're, they're betting an awful lot on, on 4K being a success. And I guess if it isn't a success, if it doesn't work out the way that they're hoping it will, um, and they don't dominate it the way that I think they're definitely positioning themselves to, then at least they can get out of the TV market quickly and painlessly. So yeah, I guess I guess that's the point. I mean, they did make a little bit of a thing in this in this statement, claiming that they were already um, had the lion's share of the Japanese 4K market, 75% of the 4K market, and in terms of revenue, they're the, the leader in the US. But then, you know, that's the leader of what? It's, it's not. It's like not very many sales. In a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a big gang of dwarves, isn't it? Really? I mean, 4K still a, a niche of a niche. Effectively, um, just um, looking at the article very briefly. Does where does this leave the projectors? Do they count as something else, or are they part? Projectors of the TV? come under projectors come under Sony Professional. Uh, right. So it's not Sony Consumer; it's Sony Professional that handles the projector side. Although they sell to consumers, it's usually through distributors. And like you say, Steve, we've been talking about 4K a hell of a lot over the last year or so on the podcast, but things are still very much up in the air and haven't really progressed in terms of content. Uh, in the last 12 months. I mean, CES was a dark squib, nothing was announced there. BDA is still saying, yes, it's agreed in principle, but nobody's actually come out and said uh, what the actual specs are going to be and how it's going to be delivered. It's likely going to be next year before we get that. So where are people going to get content from? In the meantime, can they stream it? Well, looking at... Depends on where you live, doesn't it? Well, looking at what Netflix are doing, they seem to be doing that exclusively through an application which will be on 4K TVs. So how do you get that on the projectors? Um, you know, yeah, if, if, that, if was, that's the way you're going to go. so Someone raised a point on the forum today and I was answering you, making a point back. And, and this is just my opinion, but, you know, the BDA, as you've pointed out I think we, in previous conversations, is made up of a lot of different companies. So like any committee, it takes a long time to come to a decision. So they need to agree the standards. Then they need to implement those standards into new hardware. So I'm guessing maybe for September or more likely CES 2015, we'll get some announcements on sort of 4K Blu-ray hardware, hopefully, fingers crossed. But even that isn't a guarantee because you still need studio support. I mean, if you want to look at how powerful the studios are in this whole thing, don't forget HD DVD against Blu-ray. It was Warner Brothers going Blu-ray exclusive that killed HD DVD, DVD off. So it's whether the studios are going to support uh, 4K Blu-ray, and there's no guarantee, in my opinion, that they will. I think, from their perspective, they'd much rather deliver it via download and streaming. That way, there's no middleman, there's no uh, physical medium, there's no production cost, there's no distribution. It's just once you've got the infrastructure in place, it's all gravy, as far as they're concerned, and they can control it from beginning to end. So, I'm not convinced that the studios even want to bother with another disc format. Um, so, we might get the hardware. But I don't think there's any guarantee we're going to get any decent software to go with it. Apart well, from maybe, obviously, Sony and Columbia. Well, I, I, I was just going to say, at least you get Sony and Columbia <laughs> apart, titles. Apart from the obvious one, yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, generally, the other ones, though, I'm not sure so they're that, that concerned, to be honest. So, I mean, just looking at the high street, it's it's impossible to make margins at the minute on TVs. It's been like that for the last, oh, God knows how long. A long time now. I mean, obviously, we saw Pioneer and then Fujitsu pull out. Uh, we've seen other companies restructuring their TV divisions. It's not an area where you're going to make any money. Uh, we've had the digital switch over. The only other thing that's really going to push sales is possibly the World Cup, uh, which is this year. Um, but even then, there's no 4K delivery of the World Cup, so no need to for- upgrade your TV to 4K this year. So there doesn't seem to be much motive in a really uh, saturated market, if you look at it. I mean, where are they going to make money? Um, they're saying high-end TVs, but I think their best seller last year was the W6, 
which yeah, was a budget TV. Yeah, yeah. just because it was the best seller doesn't mean they were making money off it. To be fair, does it? Most yeah. of the best selling TVs probably aren't making money. Yeah, exactly. In so that sector of the market, forty-two inch W six was there was the best selling TV in the UK in the run up to Christmas, according to Sony at least. Uh, when I was when I saw them a couple of weeks ago, but wasn't uh, the Sorry, wasn't the big idea behind smart TVs that, you know, you would get other revenue streams like associated content? I mean, it, it seems a little bit odd for Sony to kind of section off their TV division when, you know, they have been touting things like PlayStation Now for it. Yeah, and Sony are about the only ones of the of the major TV manufacturers that have got the content to sell as well. So, yeah. Yeah, but they don't seem to sell it very often. No, <laughs> they don't seem to make a great deal, a great job of it. There's not a lot of um, um, what's the word, horizontal integration in that company, is there? No. It, 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 you, know, you kind of think, well, the whole reason for buying a film studio was so you had film content to put out, and yet they don't seem to do that. They don't need to make it available, and you know, you'd, you'd think that if there was one company in a position to force feed us 4K content. It's Sony, but well, perfect. They're not even releasing that media player in this country yet. Per- so, perfect example of that is a Sony demonstration of a Sony 4K projector where they couldn't show the Sony movie because <laughs> yeah. of rights issues. That was amazing. Yeah. yeah. Really? That there, one. yeah. I just thought that there is one good bit of news out of this though, about the fact that they've sold off Veo, which means we're not going to see loads of those in the next Bond film, which should make a nice change because <laughs> every time anyone in Skyfall accessed a computer of any sort, it was a Veo. Unless that was part of the uh, agreement with uh, the company about it. <laughs> well, the best thing was uh, Casino Royale. They had Blu-ray recorders yeah, before yeah. Blu-ray was even launched. So there you go. Uh, Actually, in, in all fairness to that, Phil, they, the Blu-ray, uh, Blu-ray recorders were available in Japan in 2004. Oh, pedant. Right, let's well, no, no, I know because I saw one in a shop when I was there, living there. Let's move on from uh, declining TV sales and Sony spinning off their TV division. The BBC, uh, not happy and not quite as free as it should be, Mark. Uh, a BBC Trust report, this is, uh, the BBC Trust is a, a governing body of, of the Beeb, uh, made up of probably lots of posh people, I would have thought. Um, uh, a, a new uh, value for money report that was issued last week, uh, beginning of last week, uh, and it looks at how the BBC spends its its yearly budget, uh, or budgets, should I say, and they're not happy uh, on a couple of fronts, um, UView in particular, uh, and Sky. So we'll deal. We'll deal with UView first. Um, UView is a is a company. Um, sorry, a platform that's uh, got various investors, uh, including the BBC, ITV, Channel Four, BT, Talk Talk, Archiva, a few others. Um, and the BBC got involved with this um, to. Well, uh, p- part of the charter of the BBC is to make all their programming free to air and, and as widely available as possible to license fee payers. So uh, UView was seen along with Freeview and FreeSat as a, as a good platform to do that. Uh, they heavily invested in it uh, and now they're unhappy because they see it as BT and TalkTalk who have uh, broadband and phone and TV package deals sold on the back of the UView box. They basically think uh, the that uh, the BBC basically think that they've hijacked the UView platform uh, and it goes against their principles of making everything free to air, uh, you know, um, and widely available as possible. So, yeah, they're not happy. Uh, so they're that is, almost. That is a fair point, isn't it, Mark? I think it is a totally <laughs> fair point. No, I'm totally with them. I think it's, yeah, there's no doubt that BT and Talk Talk have, have totally hijacked UView. Uh, the vast majority of boxes out there are sold on the back of um, packaged internet and broadband deals. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm with them on that for sure. Um, and then 
they're also unhappy with uh, the amount of money they have to pay both to Freesa and Sky to get the BBC programmes listed on their EPG. So um, the BBC spends £9 million of the licence fee. That's absolutely uh, disgraceful. Absolutely. <laughs> if BBC withdraw their programming off Sky, then, you know, how many subscribers? Well, they can leave all the working class come to go and stew in their football matches, but they take the good stuff off it. Stay. What? <laughs> I'm taking that. I know, You've I know, started I, early. I just really hate Christ. Sky. I hate them with every fibre of my being. Well, of course, um, the other side of the argument is that, you know, at least Sky and Freesat are providing the platform and they have to pay for the, the upkeep of that platform. Yeah, uh, but so do Virgin. Virgin don't charge. Virgin charge them nothing. So yeah, but this I, is historically down to the fact that Virgin is, is let's not forget, an amalgamation of two of the most inept companies ever to try and sell anybody anything. It's a miracle that they do anything at all. I mean, let's face it, NTL and Telewest, they, the reason they don't charge the BBC most likely is because they, they forgot. probably forgot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, there is that, but even so, I still think it's outrageous. That but, it's, and the other thing is that, that if, the BBC, if the BBC is on the board for uh, the UVU platform, then it's down to poor board management if they, they're now saying that BT is uh, pushing their, their agendas. Um, obviously, if, they, if they're a partner in it, they've also got a board member on board and he's not doing his job. Yeah, well, I don't think they're going to be on that board very much longer. Uh, I don't know what that means for UView as a, uh, the future of UView. Probably not a great deal, to be honest. Um, well, I'm, I'm a little ashamed with UView because I would definitely have bought a UView box if it only had Wi-Fi built into it. Yeah, that is... Which is really annoying. Subject, but yeah, yeah, it is silly because since they base so much of it on the IPTV side of things um, then yeah it's crazy that it doesn't it doesn't have wireless inside I'm sure the next one will but yeah it's still it's still a good platform but yeah I, I, I can sympathize with the uh, with the uh, BBC's view on it that uh, it is hijacked by BT and talk talk the, the other problem with the BBC is that it's full of uh, bureaucracy and red tape and well, getting, it, getting anything done I mean just look at their uh, their their IT uh, side of things, they they had this IT thing where they moved a lot of the studios up to Manchester because it was going to cost them less money. They they did the new broadcasting house, they had this IT structure. I forget how much money. I think it was about a hundred million. Yeah, on this IT system that they the, implemented. That, yeah, that, that, and, that and we're then, talking about, and it all went completely tits up. Yeah, and, and then they scrapped it because it, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. it was full of red tape, it was full of bureaucracy, and that's what happens when you get a corporation like that. So. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, well, we I know I you don't like really... BBC, Phil, and you're a massive apologist for Sky. <laughs> well, no, Steve, what I'm doing is I'm giving the other side of the argument. <laughs> because otherwise it turns into you just bashing everybody and being racist. No, I'm not and bashing we, everybody because I like BBC. I think they're excellent. I d have I ever said I don't like the BBC? You have been quite critical of the BBC in the past. I think it's fair to be entirely critical. Given the role that they have and their continuous comments that they can't afford to do certain things, and that's why we get endless reruns of Only Fools and Horses, I don't think it is in any way problematic to point out the areas where they lavishly, enthusiastically, and continuously piss money up against the wall. Yeah, right. I don't have a problem with that at all. I would also point out, okay, yes, the BBC is handing over money to Sky to get itself listed on things. That's uh, terrible. At the same time... Um, if you know, I, I have a friend who is, you know, a small app. He's a, an app developer, and essentially, there's huge swathes of app development where there's nothing you can do as a private individual because a large swathe of developers working for the BBC who don't have to care about the profitability of their apps at all 
com- completely and utterly destroy that section of the market. And I still have no idea why or how that's possibly included in their remit as the state broadcaster. So they are distorting the market in other areas. I think they can just about afford to suck it up in certain areas. Boo-hoo to them. Yeah, well said, Red. Well, I mean, Steve, you didn't tell us about your new uh, moonlighting on the uh, on the Channel Four Gay campaign. Yeah, play, playing the part of the DJ. I thought you know you did your role really well there. If nobody's well, seen I, it, I am totally uh, opposed to the Sochi Olympics. Uh, I think Russia's laws are abhorrent and shouldn't be you know yeah, shouldn't be tolerated. Yeah. I was trying to make a light point um, there. So that's why I did it, Phil. That's why I did it. Yeah, I was trying to make a light point there. If anyone wants to see it, go to YouTube. Uh, put in the search engine "Gay Mountain." <laughs> And, uh, <laughs> gay man mountain I think in my case. <laughs> uh, it is the uh, Channel 4 Sochi thing, it is absolutely brilliant I also loved what Google did uh, over the weekend there where they, they made their point as well about the whole thing so it is nice to see people standing up and, and saying what they need to say although we can't say that in Russia obviously um, I would like to express my disappointment to the Austrian Olympic team, though, that they di- didn't include the Winter Olympian, whose, enti- is, whose name alone is basically a statement on Russia's rules, because he's a, a, a bobsledder. No, he's called Manuel Fister. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I, I think they should just have sent him anyway, just, just, just for the sheer unbridled joy of the fact he's called Manuel Fister. So anyway, moving on swiftly, uh, let's go to Steve. Um, LG OLED TV, it's at 1080 TV. You seem to be blown away with it because me and Mark are sick of hearing you talking about it. In amongst all this doom and gloom, it is nice to remember that occasionally a TV can turn up that actually surprises you and makes you think, yeah, there is hope for the future. Uh, I know OLED's been a long time coming. I know that there's been issues with it. And I know most of the other manufacturers at the moment at least seem to be giving it bit of a wide berth in terms of um, support. Uh, it really is down to LG at the moment uh, in terms of pushing OLED as a technology in, uh, for the mass market. But uh, I've got to say, um, concerns about the curve aside, it is a lovely picture. It really is. I mean, you know, you, you, I was watching the rugby on Saturday and, and I just sat there and thought, that's really quite impressive. Uh, you know, and you, you know, I'm sure Mark attests this, we, we get through a lot of TVs. It's difficult for a TV to, to blow us away these days because we've pretty much seen rare. it all. Yeah. yeah, and I was blown away. Um, my friend turned up on the day it arrived, and he was first of all slagging it off, saying I don't like the stand, the see-through stand. And I've got to admit, I'm not uh, a fan of the see-through stand. I, I see what they're trying to do is a kind of floating and air effect when the lights are out. Um, but as my friend pointed out, you can see through the stand, obviously, and you can see the cables hanging down the back, mm. which doesn't look that attractive. So I prefer the stand that we saw at CES, Phil. They had a, a third version with a, yeah, it was a lovely. additional stand, and that actually looked really, really sexy. Um, the curve, uh, I've kind of got used to it. You know, it, it, it's not, it's, it's as, as with the, the Samsung OLED, it's only a slight curve. It's largely pointless. Well, it's completely pointless, to be honest, but you, you kind of get used to it, and it not, isn't really an issue. Um, but the dynamic range on the TV, uh, the, the black levels, I mean, the, you can't tell when the TV's on or off if it's a black screen. You have to basically keep checking you turned it off because you just don't know. It's just completely black. Um, and, the, and the dynamic range is incredible. Um, it's, you know, it's, I've calibrated it. It's a really accurate picture. There's the level of detail, it's like, you know, as you said, only 1080p. But it reminds you just how good things can look when they're done well. And 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 even a, I put on a Blu-ray. Uh, sorry, I put on a DVD um, to watch something. I just actually watched State and Maine because Philip Seymour Hoffman was in, so like a little tribute to him. Uh, and even that looked really good because you know it just had a really well presented image. So even though it was only standard def, 
you thought, that looks quite impressive. Um, once you get onto high def into Blu-ray, it really does start to look amazing. You know, there's plenty of life left in that old dog yet, even though the manufacturers are, are trying to push us into a 4K world as fast as possible. But uh, yeah, certainly, uh, you know, if they can make these damn things at any kind of realistic price and, and get them, you know, make enough of them, um, I, for one, I'm, I'm really, really looking forward to uh, OLED becoming a more, more um, viable proposition for the mass market. So am no. I, so I can bloody get to see one. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's not forget that Phil and I went to the launch of this particular product yeah. nearly two years ago. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Actually, actually, it's nearly three years ago. So there you go. Um, obviously, there are some downsides. There's, not everything is, uh, is, is always positive. So what are the downsides with, with the LG? There's only one downside, which is um, motion handling. Which is basically like an LCD. Uh, that, that's its one real weakness. I say we, I say weakness. It's not like you're sitting there thinking oh, that looks awful. Um, but you know, when you see camera pans and that sort of stuff on, on sport, particularly, it, it is more noticeable. And certainly, that's the one area where even a, a plasma still would, would 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 be you know the superior technology in that sense. But um, but otherwise, it, it's hard to fault. It really is hard to fault. I mean, I'm looking forward to seeing what they do this year. You know, in terms of an OLED screen. Um, with their new operating, you know, with WebOS and built-in and that kind of stuff. Because, I mean, certainly from the point of view of the uh, the loving care that's gone into the TV, I mean, they've taken a long time to get here. But, you know, they, they really have thought long and hard about how to uh, design it and build it, um, make it strong. Because unlike the Samsung, which has got that kind of uh, the, the frame all around the, the, the image, the, the screen, and a much thicker screen, which they said was to make it more robust, um, the the LG you know is five millimeters thick, uh, but very strong. I'm I'm not completely sure, but I think it might even be uh, some sort of carbon fiber weave on the back of it because it it looks like the kind of, that's what it looks like anyway. But it's certainly very strong um, and incredibly thin, and it does look. I mean, stand aside, it looks it looks um, looks very slick, very slick indeed. And the price on this at the minute, Steve? I think it's four nine nine nine. It dropped dramatically before Christmas. So you can pick it up in richer sounds. And other retailers are available uh, for uh, I think it's four nine nine nine, which you know I mean okay it's a lot of money, but uh, it's heading in the right direction at least. I once paid that for a rear projection widescreen Pioneer TV. Yeah, I paid three and a half grand once for a shitty thirty-two inch widescreen for Philips CRT. <laughs> Any differences to the Samsung, Steve? Uh, well, the actual way that they they, they they. The way they deliver the OLED in terms of the technology behind it is different. So with Samsung, it's the red, green, and blue with a bigger blue to allow for the fact that blue decays faster than the other two primary colors. With um, with with LG, they've gone for a different approach. They're using a white OLED and then they're using color filters. It would seem I can't, you know, there's no certainly I'm not, they're not side by side, but I can't see any noticeable difference. I mean, I know some people reported that the, the, the LG is not as bright, but it's plenty bright as far as I can tell. Uh, you know, that's not an issue at all. So uh, there's no apparent differences between the two technologies other than the way they're actually achieved. But uh, it would appear that certainly from the perspective of LG, their approach is easier and cheaper, given that uh, Samsung yeah. are kind of thrown in a towel a little bit for the moment as far as, LG, as, far as OLED goes. Um, but I'm not the only person to get some new kit this week because, Phil, I believe you got the JVC X700. Yeah, it's all right. <laughs> so, moving on. <laughs> Yeah, it's been a while since I've had uh, some new kit in for a review, so it's nice to uh, have a new projector to play with. I haven't really done a lot of testing on it so far because what I've done is set it up, uh, started watching a few clips, and then ended up sitting watching a few films on it. It is particularly good. Uh, I have an X90, which was the flagship model from 
2011-2012. So I did a quick side-by-side while I had the X90 set up. I put the uh, X700 next to it, uh, put the same feed in, and I've got to say, I couldn't tell a great deal of difference between the two of them. So that gives you an idea of how uh, the X700 has moved on, especially with the... Uh, uh, the DILA chip where they have um, improved the contrast performance and it you know it matches what was a £10,000 model two years ago so in terms of picture quality can't really fault it there's a few things that I really need to test like the dynamic um, iris system not really sure why they put it on well I know why they put it on because there's been a big clamour especially in the US and US forums where people have demanded that uh, JVC put a dynamic iris onto their projector uh, given the native contrast level um, and dynamic range of the JVCs, I don't really see a need for it. Um, but we'll give it a full test. And I, I know you've tested it on the 500, Steve. What did you think? I, I couldn't see the point. For, uh, for me, it made no perceivable difference in terms of improving the picture quality. I found the native contrast ratios to be superb already. You know, the reason people have been putting dynamic irises on, on projectors is because their blacks are crap yep. and they're trying to make them better. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, you know, it is opening and closing very fast in order to make blacks appear blacker. That's going to have detrimental effect in that shadow detail. It has to, logically. Yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, yeah, give it give it a good go and see what you think. Yeah. And uh, I mean, like you say, the Sony uh, projectors are absolutely brilliant. But to, to get them up to JVC level, they have to use the dynamic iris. And, and fair enough, the Sony dynamic iris is absolutely brilliant. You can't see it working. It doesn't affect the image perceivably affect the image when you're watching content on it and it does get it up to JVC levels but like we said the G- it's getting it up to JVC levels it has a dynamic contrast there um, I haven't tested it with 3D yet I haven't calibrated it yet I haven't had a chance to, to do that but out of the box THX mode looks fine uh, you put it in a user mode my only complaint is that they switch everything on in these other modes so you've got to go through and switch everything off again so the clear motion drive is a little bit of an improvement. I didn't see any artifacts using it in the low setting with video content. I watched a stand-up uh, DVD actually, and it didn't it didn't really uh, affect the image in terms of uh, artifact and running like that. And it looked okay with video content. Uh, with film content, I could tell it was switched on yeah, straight away, instantly. so I switched it off. Yeah. <laughs> and for the price point, well, a lot of people are going to compare this with the Sony VW500ES. Uh, and rightly so, because they're almost at the same price point. I think the JVC is maybe a grand cheaper. Yeah. Obviously, the Sony is a native 4K panel. But then again, we come back to the, well, what are you going to watch on the Sony in terms of content, native content? You're going to be upscaling. And the JVC has its E-Shift 3, which does work well this year. Like you said, it starts off in the film mode. And if you want to uh, mess with the controls and, and uh, do the enhance and dynamic contrast and all the rest, it, you can do that or you can switch it off. Um, the only other thing I noticed on this model, and I don't know if it's just the projector that I've been sent, and it's, it is a retail uh, unit, it was sent from their stock, uh, it does whine. There is this whining noise when you have E-Shift switched on, which I found quite noticeable, and that could just be that I'm picking up on the frequency that the thing's whining at, and it only really happens when you're changing content or whatever on the projector. You can really notice notice it then. During a film, don't really notice it. But that was another thing that immediately stood out because I could hear it. But I don't know if that's just that unit or not. I, so. I could hear uh, it, like, the thing that you could hear it was when it, when you change content, it would suddenly change pitch for a second or two. Not quite sure why it was doing that. Like it was turning itself. It seemed like it was turning itself on and off quite a lot. Yeah. Um, not quite sure why it was doing that either. 
Um, you, but you certainly on, on the 500 I had, you, you couldn't hear it at all when you're watching a film or anything like that. It was it was just um, yeah, and also when the, the room was quiet. Obviously, the X90 had the first version of uh, E-Shift, and I, I I can't hear it on that. I can't hear that whine at all. So uh, so that did stand out. But uh, full review coming probably in the next week uh, once I get a chance to sit down and calibrate it and measure it and play about with all the settings and see what the dynamic iris is doing and, and the other stuff that's in there as well. Uh, there's like a black enhancer, which I'll be interested to see what that's actually doing to the uh, to the video signal. And that's it for hardware. We're going to move on, wake up Mr. Botwright and talk games next. What? So moving on to games, uh, big controversy. Flappy Bird, I, I, I'm assured that this is a game, uh, has been pulled for sales. Tell us about it, Mark. Uh, yes, um, a small uh, Vietnamese developer, Dong Nguyen, has removed it. <laughs> yeah, oh, I knew that would bring a laugh. Come on, Steve. Yeah, he's removed it from uh, the Apple Store and Google Play, uh, despite it making a reported or claimed $50,000 per day in ad revenue and supposed to have been downloaded over 50 million times. Seems to have had a little bit of a, a Twitter meltdown, um, saying that he can't take this anymore. It's similar to to Phil Fish, um, the Fez director who cancelled Fez Two. Um, he said that it's not due to legal issues, but a lot of people have noted uh, similarities to certain assets, like uh, the pipes from the Mario games, and it's similar to an earlier game uh, and objects look like they might be, or certain sprites possibly i won't say reused but taken inspiration from um it's a simple free free to download game you tap the bird to keep it in flight and try to uh, avoid the pipes um it, it's one of those kind of i don't know addictive little um moment killers that seems to last the entire commute uh and it just—it's it, one of those stories that comes up to kind of reinforces just how much money is possible from these, you know, very very small scale developments, and also that usually the developers don't have the correct tools to handle the pressures that come with it. It seems strange that if it's bringing in that much money and he's pulled it, then it can only be a cease, cease and desist order or somebody's threatening legal action. Why else would you pull it if it's making that much money? Yeah, I, I suppose there's there's that. I mean, yeah, but there Have again, you seen some of the vitriol that people that ostensibly love the game pour yeah. out in the general direction of well, anyone prepared to listen? That what makes Flappy Bird a masterpiece is that it is testing the very limits of just how appalling in terms of difficulty and a general, general sort of. Um, gaming experience you can make something before people feel compelled to stop and and the answer from anyone that's played Flappy Bird is you can make it very terrible indeed it, I, I, even the videos that you can see of it on YouTube if you haven't played it's too late obviously they've now taken it down it just it, it even the videos don't do justice to just how mind-blowingly frustrating it is as a game it takes you right back to the 80s the only thing I can think of which is close to that is the um Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game with the underwater level that was completely impossible. It's the same basic premise where the controls are just responsive enough to make it notionally possible, but in reality it's completely and utterly impossible. And it 
brings people back like moths to a flame. All I would say is that if he has taken it down, it may simply be that there's something else in the wings ready to, to cause migraines across the, across the world. Uh, reading on Twitter as well that devices with the game uh, already on it are selling on eBay for up to $10,000. Only to idiots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just one born every minute, isn't there? But um, no, as I say, it, I mean, for those of us from it, it, those with an, uh, a, an perhaps an, an ill-thought-out nostalgia for 80s computer games, I mean, I played it briefly. Ironically, I deleted it a while back because I was getting ready to sell sell my phone on the on the classifieds. But um, <laughs> I, uh, I, 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 I should have with it in situ. I know, I know, I know. I, I made it made it a, a foolish mistake. So. Um, that that was always uh, obviously a problem, but no, it just took me right back to the to, to you know having three lives. If you died, you went straight back to the beginning of the level, and yeah, it is it it's it's everything that my childhood was, just in a smaller and more compact form. And, but does uh, that it, make it does that make it a good game, or is it almost like the the kind of small game version of like Stockholm syndrome? It you know you you kind of it it's got you, and you you kind of look at it and think, well, there must be something you know vaguely empathetic there. And it isn't. It's just a ridiculously hard and simple game. I don't know about you, Mark, but I have looked back on my childhood gaming history and I've wondered exactly where the pleasure-pain threshold actually was. I mean, some of the Amiga, especially really bad Amiga ports of the um of the uh, of, of coin op games had collision detection that made them as frustratingly difficult as flappy bird ever did and yet i still played those to death i mean the original ocean version of robocop was effect was a dreadful and b almost completely impossible i still think i played it for two months oh you can see why people got worried about the first generation kind of raised on video games because it was just die reload die reload are you enjoying this no <laughs> but I'm going to keep going until it kills me, or That's, I have a fit. I, I, I put that down to why I don't game now. It put me off. Games uh, these days are, are made to be completed. They're, they're, they're made to allow you to get to the end and finish them. They really are. There are so few that kind of hark back to the old days of really kind of bashing you over the head and challenging, you know, your sanity. Yes. Um, and yeah, I mean, there were certain Amiga games where they clearly never intended you to finish it because things just sort of petered out at the end. They'd obviously just stuck something in there which they vis- envisaged was impossible to get past and then just left it. So, you know, I, 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 have, I have a certain... I don't know, Fla- Flappy Bird takes me back to a, a, a place where I once was, but I, I'm afraid I won't be spending out on an, on, on, on a, on an existing copy of it, it just because I'm just not that way out, I'm afraid. But no. It's it, it. I can understand why people have lost as much time as they have. To. I think you're just getting nostalgic for your youth, Ed. Well, possibly. <laughs> and that, now that you're a father, maybe you realise. Yeah, I, I apologise if, if Phil doesn't manage to get him out of the edit. But yeah, he, I don't know. I, 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 his gaming experience will be radically different to mine. Although, obviously, when, once he's of an age where I can hopefully guarantee he won't destroy it, he will. He will play on my Amiga. So he'll he'll see things that most others. Is that like play. some family heirloom? <laughs> no, I bought it a couple of years ago. Uh, you know, eBay late at night, <laughs> drunk. The, the, the usual, yeah. So, but yeah, I don't regret it. I've bought some more more stupid things on eBay, more transient things. So, yeah. well, I've never heard of Flappy Bird until ten minutes ago. Well, this is because you're old. I'm sure you've had plenty of Flappy <laughs> Birds. In your life. I've had plenty of Flappy Birds, yeah. But uh, oh, blimey, Phil, you you you, you inferring I'm straight? Only that makes, a, that makes a nice change. No, you're bi. <laughs> Well, I think on some level we all are, aren't we? Nope. (laughs) (laughs) 
I once had this conversation with, with some mates of mine and, and was making that argument. And I said, look, I'm perfectly comfortable with my sexuality. And my friend said, yeah, we're f***ing not. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that one for the Valentine's Day thing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's, let's, see, let's save that for later on. Only other thing we've got mentioned games-wise is the games podcast is uh, due on Friday. Uh, have you recorded it yet, Mark? Nope, nope. Hopefully uh, tomorrow night. Will be will the it one. Be a Valentine's Day special? No, it will be um... <laughs> man love. The game is getting it on. <laughs> no, you won't be invited, Steve. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, no, thank f- for that. No, we're going to be tackling. Uh, fingers crossed, Outlast. We've kind of challenged it's ourselves. People, people have challenged your man's masculinity on last week's podcast. Yes. Yes, as a matter of fact. <laughs> well, you are a big bunch of girls' blouses. Let's be honest about it. I mean, you're flying well, into the game. I'll do them. Yeah. And and I, I swear I will have played it before tomorrow. Um, would you uh, sort your trousers is the real question? Uh, well, that's always a risk you have to take. And what else are you doing in the podcast? Uh, I, I really don't know, I'm afraid. <laughs> but it's going to be one. <laughs> this one. <laughs> Sounds like it's going to be a question. Was this one? <laughs> yeah, so, so nice to see it's well planned and you have a. Well, a, I'd a have to open order. the. see what we'd all written down what we were going to do. I don't <laughs> have it stored in my memory, do I? Haven't you got Steve Steve's Steve Hill's show notes? <laughs> yeah, but I you know, I don't want to open up any extra little browsers for fear that it might crash this wonderful podcast that we're doing right now. <laughs> <laughs> God knows if the rubber band snaps, we're done Classic. for. You're gonna be talking about the X one Xbox One firmware update, aren't you, Mark? Wow. Yes, yes we are. Well done. <laughs> How did you know that, Mark? Uh, I'm just, just, just reading the thing that Mark put up earlier <laughs> himself. <laughs> See, I wrote this stuff. <laughs> Strider reboot coming this month and Dungeon Keeper ratings fiddle. There you go. There That's you what go. they're talking oh, about. There, well, there is, def- I, Sounds... I there is definitely something going on there. How that can be rated the way it is. It's a let's, travesty. Let's leave that to them. I'm sure, they'll get, I'm, I'm sure we'll get the whole story within two hours. It's... Right, is that it? Size? Yeah, unless you want to go on. Uh, no. Not really. Okay, thanks. I'll get back to Skyrim. <laughs> okay, Steve, what's at the cinema? Uh, well, this week we've got Robocop, the remake, obviously not the original, and Dallas Buyers Club. Um, Robocop, we'll start with Robocop first. Uh, all I can say about Robocop is um, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. Um, which is, I guess, faint praise, but it was, you know, it was competently made. It was mildly entertaining. It had a reasonable story, which didn't actually copy the, I mean, obviously the basic premise is the same, but the story is different from the Verhoeven original. The action, uh, actually, to be honest, there wasn't as much action in it as I thought there would be. It was, it, there were long sections when there was nothing, no fighting or anything like that, shooting going on, which surprised me. Um, but what action there is is fairly tame and bloodless. There's a the whole sequence where there's a big shootout basically in the dark which I'm assuming was in order to maintain their PG-13 rating, uh, minimise the amount of you know bloodletting and, and people getting hit and that sort of stuff. So it's fairly um, sanitised in that sense. Um, the lead guy, I've never even heard of him, uh, and he's pretty uninteresting and not very charismatic. Certainly nowhere near as good in the role as I think Peter Weller was in the original. But there's some interesting stuff in there, specifically dealing with him you know, him and his relationship with his wife and his son after he's, you know, turned into a cyborg 
which um, I, I guess is, 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 a, is, a, is an interesting aspect to look at. There's also some commentary on American foreign policy and the use of drones and that kind of thing, which I, I guess makes it slightly uh, relevant to the current modern times. Having said that, you know, it's completely missing the sort of biting satire, the uh, the, the humour, uh, and obviously the, the the staggering bloodletting that you know and violence that was in Verhoeven's original. What I can say definitely is that whilst we can sit here right now and talk about the original Robocop, twenty seven years after it was made, and still all pretty much agree, I think that it's an absolute classic. I can guarantee you, no one will be talking about the remake in twenty seven years' time. Um, it was, uh, yeah, it was just uh, okay. Well, it, ultimately, I just sat there and thought. I got a little bit bored in the middle section, to be honest. And then I thought, why do they bother? Why do they bother? You know, do you know what, what, what was the point of this? Do you know what encapsulates everything that's wrong with it? Um, Milton Keynes Cineworld uh, has spotted a gap in the market. And Wednesday morning, it's got, and I, none of this is a lie, it's got cine babies where um, you can just bring your child along to watch a film and they keep the lights up a bit and basically it doesn't matter if your child cries because there's a couple of hundred other in there and, and they're likely to be crying too and the film this wednesday they're showing at cine babies is robocop now can you even begin to imagine doing that with the verhoeven one <laughs> Um, so yeah, I do uh, hope someone somewhere mixed up the prints. <laughs> yeah, that's just for one screening. <laughs> well, hang on, Ed, were you at Cine Babies? Is that how you? I don't, about? I don't do Cine Babies, no, no, Steve. I use it to to, to, to produce the um, in depth and, and hopefully well thought out reviews I've produced for AV forums when uh, I'm not also trying to wipe dribble up at the same time and and, and keep my son away. Your dribble, or well, it depends really how the night before. I mean, yeah. So um, anyway, oh, uh, so that was Robocop, um, which I, I guess, you know, I'd probably give it six or seven out of ten. It was perfectly entertaining and, and what competently made. But you kind of just think, what's the point at the end of the day? Uh, after that, I watched Dallas Buyers Club, which I thought was absolutely superb. Um, Matthew McConaughey is almost unrecognisable in the film. Uh, he lost something like 50 pounds to play the role. As this, of this guy, Ron, a real true story of a, a guy called Ron Woodruff. He was kind of a hustler, electrician on the rodeo circuit, very promiscuous drug taker. And he is uh, diagnosed with full-blown AIDS and given 30 days to live. Um, and playing somebody in that stage of disease, you know, he, he does lose the way. He looks, he looks, I mean, you actually do kind of fear for the actor's health. He looks so ill at times and, and thin and, and emaciated. But it's just, but his performance in general is superb. It's not just the physical aspects of it. It's also, you know, he covers what is a very complex character who starts off at the beginning as being homophobic and bigoted and pretty much a nasty bit of work. And then is diagnosed and then starts trying to get hold of just experimental drugs. The idea being, that, you know, he initially for himself, it's for purely selfish reasons, he wants to get hold of these drugs because they might help his condition. And then gradually starts selling them to other people, other sufferers, uh, for profit and, and for financial gain, but then ultimately ends up becoming a bit more of an activist. Trying to because the, the, what the film does cover quite well is the history of that sort of mid to late eighties period when, uh, you know, there were all these experimental drugs being developed like AZT um, and interferon, but they weren't um, obviously um, passed by the FDA for use in the US. So people were buying them abroad. They're buying them in Mexico. They're buying them from Japan. They're buying them from China, wherever they could get them. And technically, they're of course illegal. But the argument was, well, you know, if you're in the last stages of AIDS and you're like, you're going to die anyway. Really, do you need to be protected from the drugs? If they don't work, they don't work, but they might help. And what he was doing was keeping records of what was working and what wasn't working and what kind of treatments were helping some of his customers. Um, and you know, he could have fed that information back to the doctors. It could have been really useful. Uh, so it's, it's, it was, it was, I thought it was a fascinating film. He's brilliant in it. Jared Leto, who plays his, his initially, uh, he plays a, a transgender woman, basically. And I've got to say, good-looking boy. 
<laughs> just you know, one, one of those few examples of where, where where a guy's playing a transgender woman, it doesn't look uh, you know unattractive. <laughs> uh, you would you, you. you? Yeah, I, I think most people. It, it has so. been a long yeah, time, hasn't it? Quite <laughs> yeah, living in the countryside in your own is not a good thing. Um, but he's really, really good too. Again, he lost a lot of weight because obviously he's also got full blown AIDS. But he, you know, he has to spend the whole film basically in drag, uh, and he's he's superb. Both him and McConaughey are up for Oscars. So I got a sneaking suspicion that they're both going to win uh, Best Actor for McConaughey, Best Supporting Actor for and I think they thoroughly deserve it. To be honest, they're superb in the film. Um, yeah, it was it was a great movie, really, really, and, and but surprisingly enjoyable and fun for given the subject matter. It's not uh, it's not really depressing. It's moving. Um, and it makes you think, and, it, and it's got some really interesting historical facts in it. But it's what it's not is is depressing, it, which is you know when you think about a film about someone who's got full blown AIDS, uh, you immediately would think that's not going to be much of a laugh. Phil, Phil, Philadelphia, actually, sorry, Philadelphia, Philadelphia. I was just yes. say yeah. Philadelphia. Uh, yeah, that, isn't, that, isn't that a Family Guy? Good, guy? Good, good, I just yeah. can't help uh, that song has been now going around in my head ever since we started. You started the, the commentary <laughs> on this film. You yeah. have AIDS. <laughs> 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 Full blown AIDS. <laughs> is, is is it the good AIDS or the bad AIDS? <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, so um, I, I think I get the eight out of ten. It's 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 a great film with some really really stand up performances in it from from uh, McConaughey and Leto. Um, and uh, yeah, if you if you fancy going to the movies, definitely check it out. Is uh, no, it is based on a true story. Um, Absolutely, yeah. But how much of that is is retained in in the movie, and how much? Well, is actually, uh, the majority of the film is pretty true. There are um, uh, Leto's character is a composite, so he's a composite. His his character is a composite of various people that knew and and sort of worked with Ron Woodruff in his business. Because the blues is called Dallas Buyers Clubs because they created these buyers clubs, and by being a member of the club, they weren't actually selling you the drugs. They were, you know, they were part of the membership. So it was a kind of way of circumventing certain aspects of the law. Um, the Jennifer Garner in it is a doctor. And again, she's a composite character who represents the medical industry, basically. But uh, certainly the majority of, uh, of the film is pretty accurate. Now, some people have said that Ron Woodruff wasn't as bigoted as, as he's portrayed in the film, in actual fact, um, and may even have been bisexual himself. But clearly, from the point of view of having a kind of a coherent narrative, they've, they've made that decision to have him as being one thing and then making that, going on that journey effectively and then totally changing his outlook and perspective by the end of the film, um, which is which is fair enough, I think, from a point of view of movie. He also had a wife and a daughter, uh, sorry, a sister and a daughter who don't show up in the movie. Um, again, I think to keep a more a cleaner, cleaner narrative from the point of view of the story they were telling. But but on the whole, it actually is pretty accurate. And it was shot in 25, in 25 days on three million bucks. Uh, and I've got to say, it was all shot handheld, and um, it gives the film a, a real vibrancy and immediacy, you know, a rawness to it. You kind of feel like you're actually there, um, but still shot, I think, quite creatively. And then it was shot on uh, scope ratio, and, and the framing is really nice. It's not, you know, it doesn't look like it's just all shaky handheld stuff. It's, it's actually done, done really well. But um, yeah, it was a good, good film. Excellent. Uh, before we move on to Blu-rays released this week, uh, we spoke about Babylon last week. Anybody catch it last night on uh, Channel 4? I watched it. Uh, yes, I did. Got it recorded. Got it recorded as well. I enjoyed it. That was really funny. Yeah, I've got to say, uh, really, really enjoyed it. As and, a cop, uh, you must have really dug some of the aspects of it. They had Fox well, Shot Oscar at one point, they had, <laughs> they had a lot of stuff absolutely nailed on. Um, and you could say that for any industry or any corporation, really, where... Um, you're looking at the, the the top end and what what they say and what they don't say, what they admit to and what they don't admit to, and so on. Um, really funny as well. Really, really funny. Yeah, it was uh, very good. So very good, and it's been recommissioned for a series which is going to be later in the year, which is great. 
probably a quick plug here, that the guy directing the first three episodes of the new series um, is John S. Baird, who directed Filth. Uh, and uh, I interviewed him last week about Filth and a little bit about Babylon as well. So if you're interested, you can read that on the site right now. And Kaz's review of Filth is already up. And I believe the disc comes out this week, came out uh, today. In fact, because mine arrived, actually. Kaz's review is on the site and the interview is also on the site. Got to say, uh, really good film. If you like uh, the quirkiness of Aaron Welsh stuff, uh, it, it it translates really well to the screen. Um, yeah, and James McAvoy gives the performance of his career in it. Absolutely staggering. Yeah, top notch. It's turned very, very dark towards the end, though, doesn't it? It's a pitch black movie, but it's it <laughs> yeah. is gallows, gallows well, humour all well, the way well, through. Well, it's, a, it's, yeah. it's an Aaron Welsh vehicle, so it's going to do that. You know what I mean? You know what to expect from him. Um, it, it makes you laugh, though, doesn't it? There's some really funny bits. Oh, in yeah. It. I mean, I, I was watching oh, it on really the funny. plane, and I'm sure the people round about me on the plane thought I was nuts because I was laughing so loud. Uh, the funniest <laughs> thing on that plane was because it's shot in a scope ratio, and it was being shown on the plane in its as- correct aspect <laughs> ratio on this little tiny screen. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking at, looking at like a postage stamp size. The, the two <laughs> movies I picked as well, Sunshine on Leith and Felt, and they were both scope ratio, and you're thinking, why? <laughs> Uh, moving on, other films released uh, this week on Blu-ray. Captain Phillips, I know you're going to give this a big thumbs up, Steve. Yeah, absolutely. I've got the I've got the Blu-ray myself. Uh, a couple of, got it from the states a couple of weeks ago. Actually, I watched it on the X500, funny enough. And uh, it's still absolutely. So even though you know I'd seen it once before, it's still nail-biting and really well made. Uh, one of those films that apparently I'm having a little research afterwards. I'm not sure how accurate it is. Apparently, a lot of the guys on the ship said that Ketifers was an idiot and he he went too close to the Somali <laughs> to Somali coastline and this sort of stuff. Um, but uh, the film itself is nail biting and really, really well made and great performances, particularly from Tom Hanks, who who gives a, a absolutely fantastic performance of it. I have it myself. Yet to put it in the uh, player. Do you, you watch any films? I'm not no Kazis. You, you just seem to get them through and put them to the side. You don't actually seem to watch them, Simon. I've got you a huge mountain of unwatched DVDs and Blu-rays. It's yeah. unbelievable. You could Same build here. a house for it. Yeah, it's actually taller than me, my pile, at the minute. <laughs> um, uh, Mind you, I'm Simon, not very tall. You've got to say anything about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not Simon, that tall. Six, then. <laughs> F- <laughs> off. <laughs> Uh, other discs released this week, Turbo, How I Live Now and Enough Said. Uh, anything to say about them? I saw Enough Said on the same flight that you watched Filth on, um, and I really enjoyed that. That was the last penultimate, I think, yeah, the last film with James Gandolfini in it before he died um, with um, Julia Weiss Dreyfus. Uh, I, I really enjoyed it. It's very funny. I thought it was a really, really good movie, really, really sweet and, and, and very funny. How I Live Now, um, Kaz's review has just gone up for that one as well. Uh, I saw that cinema in the summer. Didn't like that so much. It was kind of a tweeny movie, but set to after a sort of World War Three. Uh, not great. Uh, Turbo, I really enjoyed. I think you saw this, Mark, didn't you as well? Nice to enjoy this, yeah. Yeah, I thought it was yeah. great. Great romp. Yeah. Um, you've seen all of these, did you just say? All, no, all the kids' movies that come out. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's so, what so, Turbo's about a, a little snail who, who, by some sort of magic, ends up being incredibly fast and enters the Indy 500. Uh, it is great fun. <laughs> I did enjoy it. Uh, right, so from the discs uh, released this week, what should people go out and buy? Well, I definitely recommend Captain Phillips. I think, that, you know, uh, all around as a film, all around film, it's, it's a great movie worth seeing. Enough said, uh, it's, it's certainly worth checking out. Maybe not buying on disc, checking out at some point, but it's funny and nice. Filth, as long as you're broad minded, yeah, a quiet <laughs> uh, taste, I and think. And not easily one. offended. Uh, is worth checking out too. It's it's one of the most quotable movies I've seen recently. Uh, yeah, really... we can't quote them on this though. Unfortunately, too much swearing. <laughs> yeah, it. yeah. E- even with a bleep, uh, it's not going to work on the, on the podcast. 
Uh, right, so you might have noticed uh, our introductions this evening were from The Wedding Singer. Probably one of my favourite romantic comedies just because it plays on the whole 80s, uh, the whole 80s thing. Really funny, really quite well put together. It is a bit of a, well, are you going to have Billy Idol on the plane? Are you going to sing your, your song over the tunnel and all the rest? It's a bit far-fetched, but good fun. So it is Valentine's Day coming up on Friday and I'll be spending the day with Frank. Yep, I'll be binge watching myself to death on House of Cards. Did you say yeah. watching? Yes. Yes, yes. yes. Said watching. Well, as opposed to what? <laughs> There's similar, another, form, another binge activity. It's well known <laughs> on the internet, Stephen. <laughs> There's quite a few binge activities, to be honest, uh, Ed. So, uh, season two's House of Cards, it's out on Friday, Valentine's Day, the whole series two. Uh, so I'll certainly be binging over the weekend because I'm sad and lonely and don't have a girlfriend. Uh, I'm assuming it's the same for you, Steve, unless... Uh, Absolutely not. I shall be binging and watching with a girlfriend. And, <laughs> so you get your foot pump sorted then. <laughs> yeah, but... <laughs> uh, right, so romantic comedies. I've got to say, I'm, I'm not a big fan of these things. Like I say, Wedding Singer was a, a bit of a favourite of mine. There are a couple others that I quite like. Love Actually is set at Christmas, so it doesn't really... Does it count for Yeah, I think that's more as a Christmas film. It is, yeah, it's more of a Christmas film, isn't it? And I'm struggling to to think of anything else that I would really... Four Weddings? You know, like Four Weddings? No, not really. No. No. Bridget Jones? No. Cotting Hill? Arthur. Richard Richard Curtis has has pretty much covered that market, hasn't he? I was going to say, Love Actually, I hated it when it came out. It's actually something that's grown on me over the years because it's always been on TV or or whatever. Um, Other Richard Curtis stuff? No. Got no time for it. Um, I like something that's a, a little bit different. Um, you mentioned Wedding Singer, Punch Drunk Love. It's not really a romantic comedy. Well. <laughs> it's, it's not remotely it's, funny. It's a different twist, isn't it? I mean, the the, the first film that I took uh, my first girlfriend to uh, in the ABC wife. cinema in Yule, which isn't even there anymore, was uh, Predator. Metropolis. No, Predator. <laughs> Metropolis. <laughs> <laughs> And, and what did what did she think when you said we're going to see Predator? <laughs> uh, well, yeah, yeah well, I take yeah. you no longer with her. <laughs> no, no, not anymore, not anymore. But my but, what a but surprise! Predator Two was just something they couldn't get past. <laughs> exactly, but a, a very very strange quirk of coincidence. Uh, my now living partner, the first film that we went to see together in Australia. <laughs> Was predators? <laughs> How weird is that? Did you say? Do you associate a seven-foot-tall mandible creature with love? <laughs> <laughs> did Did you say live in or living? <laughs> live in. <laughs> Just wanted to clarify. Would five hundred days of summer sit- count? Absolutely, that was going to be one of my choices. It's not actually a romantic comedy; it's kind of an anti-romantic comedy. But uh, for, it's one it's of the got, few. Isn't it? Hasn't it got that irritable bird in it? What's Zoe it? Deschanel? I love Zoe Deschanel. I know. You, word you said know against her. <laughs> whereas I would quite happily watch the test card in preference. Irritable bird syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> Five hundred days of summer is excellent. Very, very. My good. wife considers the original Terminator to be a love story. Technically, it is. Yes, yeah, that's true. I, I, I think I'd be happier putting it in the pursuit movie category. But you and her can obviously uh, chew the fat over that. Um, obviously, I'd only let you near under supervision. But it's a love story that traverses time. Actually, well, in that case, somewhere in time is one of my favourite. Not really romantic comedy, but certainly romantic films. 
Mm. Yeah, we're really mm. a romantic bunch here, aren't we? We're really <laughs> well, I, they're, they're tripping off the tongue here. High fidelity. I think high fidelity is absolutely brilliant. Well, the Nick Hornby adaptation, is it? Yes, it is. And it's totally very, very funny and pretty much bang on the money as far as blokes go. <laughs> Gregory's girl. Ah, well, yeah, that was all right. It was all right. But it's tame. <laughs> it's yeah, just come crack. to me. I don't know why. And then you got Rita Sue and Bob too. Yeah, That's that a cracker. Cool. <laughs> it's about the most eighties film in the history of the universe. It's just fantastic. Oh, it's the bit. The, the best bit is to have black lace in it. Doing the musical number. Oh, yeah, doing. <laughs> We're having a gang bang. We're having a ball. <laughs> Can you get that on on uh, Blu-ray? Probably not. What about when Harry met Sally? That's got to be worth a mention. Isn't oh it? no, uh, Meg Ryan is Meg, 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 Meg Ryan could be Zoe Deschanel's mother in terms of how much she affects me. <laughs> <laughs> Knocked up, or, or even 40-year um, version. To be honest, knocked up, 40-year-old version I do quite like. Knocked up occurred in that brief window where Seth Rogen wasn't something that caused me to throw things at the television. But I don't know <laughs> if that's past now. And yeah. like, oh, look, I do the same thing in all the films. Yeah, I never, never found him funny. Uh, Mark Borey, what's your suggestions? Um, Emily, does that count? Groundhog Day. Uh, that's kind of romantic. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that. Yeah, um, Groundhog Day is brilliant. And Gr- Groundhog Day was recently, 2nd of February, wasn't it? Uh, yes, yes, it was. He takes a wild punt and says... I'd have to throw in, since you mentioned The Wedding Singer, Phil, I quite, I always quite like Fifty First Dates, which was their uh, sort of follow-up film together, wasn't it? Not to be confused with The Fifty First State, which isn't a <laughs> or a good film, or much of a film. <laughs> You can get Rita Sue and Bob 2 on DVD. Not No Blu-ray release. Sorry. What about There's Something About Mary? That's, that's really funny. Yeah, I don't like that. <laughs> God, you're a miserable bunch of bastards. <laughs> I, I have to say, I hate I hate the forced, the, the forced nature of Valentine's Day. I always have. I mean, I'm happily married. I love my wife very much. But the idea that we should make an effort on what will inevitably be some bleak, drizzly day earlier on in the year... Just, oh. Here, here. At least it's a Friday. Sell sell cards, isn't it? Basically, and flowers. That's the only reason it exists. Of course it is. Yeah. 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 I was going to say, to remind people that are lonely that they are on their own, which probably jacks up the suicide rate for that day or something. (laughs) Uh, Actually, I think you're no far from the truth. I think it's New Year's Day followed by Valentine's Day in the official (laughs) list (laughs) of the best days to kill yourself. Yeah, so thanks to all those smug bastard couples. Sorry, best days to kill yourself. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good day to die hard. (laughs) My favourite Indian restaurant does an anti-Valentine's Day sort of meal where um, it's basically, it's just a big, they do big standard sort of uh, banquet style thing, but it's ratcheting the garlic and naga chilli quotients up to a solid 11 out of 10. So um, yeah, it it keeps the dewy eyed lot away. And um, I I don't know if we make it this year, obviously, because we've got the baby, but um, that's traditionally what we've actually done on Valentine's Day last couple of years. So uh, Okay, so Hodgie's just said, no, I don't like that. Uh, So what's your choices? choice <laughs> I like Arthur I like John Gielgud in Arthur I really like that performance and the whole f- and Liza Minnelli was very good and and uh, what's Dudley his name Moore, little fella drunk. yeah Dudley, Dudley Moore was a good I think it was a cracking movie what that, about Annie Hall Annie... oh that's quite good is that a rom-com strictly I like well, it's romance and it's funny yeah I guess so yeah I guess there are some I, mean, I went through a list of the top hundred and I literally got Arthur 
that I liked. Um, <laughs> so I mean, despite going on about how fantastic he is in Dallas Buyers Club, I wouldn't watch any romantic comedy with Matthew McConaughey in it. No. Failure, failure to launch is is oh, yeah. I, I I'd like. I'd that. lose a guy in ten days. Is he in that? Yeah. <laughs> Well, you, you know, it's one of his films. If if uh, he's he's uh, leaning up against leaning something, against something on the poster, on the poster, yeah. <laughs> as opposed to Tom Cruise ones, where he's always running away from something. Oh, uh, oh, Jerry Maguire. That's that's I quite like Jerry Maguire. That honestly is one of my least favorite films of all time. The only film I can at, the, at an, a heart and instantly say is worse than that is Carry On Columbus. Jeremy, <laughs> we're putting Jerry Maguire in the same boat, metaphorically, as, as Carry On Columbus. Jerry Maguire is a phrase that rhymes with clucking hit. It's it's just awful on a level I can't easily rationalise. It's got people I hate doing things I hate in a hateful way, and for whatever reason, everyone else appears to have been struck over the head with a blunt object and doesn't recognise just how chronically shite that film is. Ed, you're you all wrong. You don't have to sit on the fence, Ed. What about a bit of John Hughes' classic then, like Pretty in Pink? Well, I did have a thing from Molly Ringwald. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I've ever seen it. Get out. <laughs> and the psychedelic furs. <laughs> they, they, they knew what they were doing. Well, I suppose it doesn't have to be comedy. I mean, romance doesn't have to be funny. It can be harrowing. <laughs> painful. <laughs> yeah, you've got to be careful. If you take it away yeah. from comedy, Steve's going to say Emmanuel. <laughs> <laughs> I always preferred Emmanuel too myself. But no, yeah. it'd be the fast in the few this month. <laughs> Breakfast Club. <laughs> Ooh. Is that, is that romantic comedy? That's more of a teen movie, isn't it? There's romance in it. It's a couple, funny, though, is there? There's romance it, it, in it, yeah. But it, it, I, I from, there, like, from there, it's a hop, skip, and a jump to Back, back to the Future with a the love story <laughs> between a boy and his mother. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why say, Disney didn't want to make that film. <laughs> you go weird science. What, a love between two boys and a robot? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She wasn't a robot. Fit to, yes, well, she was made for a Barbie doll. <laughs> that, was, yeah, but... that was the first video that went round our class in primary school with a bit of muff in it. <laughs> <laughs> There's no muff in weird science. You didn't pause right. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that was followed up with, um, what was the other one? Was it Lady in Red or something similar? Oh, Woman in Red. Woman in Red. That was the one. That was the other one that went round a week or two after. Did you get a take back? Mannequin was with King and Two girls, one cup. A <laughs> <laughs> love story for our time. I, I, I think the, the the flip side of that one was was the videos of people watching it. I found that yes. more entertaining, really, really entertaining. Watching more the- entertaining <laughs> says that you've watched the original. <laughs> before, we go, yeah. before we go any further, can we just check who has actually watched Two Girls, One Cup? I've got to say, I haven't seen it. I have. No, I, I have seen it to my eternal shame. Not the entire film, I'd like to point out, just the... Just um, until the point that you yeah. finished. <laughs> yeah, the first two minutes, basically, were, were good for me. After that, it was a bit pointless. Uh, anyone else apart from me? Please say somebody else has seen it. No. Please? No? Sorry. I'm, surprised Ed ha- I'm surprised Ed hasn't seen it. Ed, I think you've seen yeah, everything am, on the I internet. I know no, you must have seen Which it. Which film's this, right? What, Two Girls, One Cup? Two yeah. Girls, One Cup. He no, it. no, no. I've seen the video responses to it, and and I I am aware of the um of the basic plot. So it's <laughs> scatological, basically, it's scatological. Um, I it's have watched I've watched two and a half minutes of Swap AVI, 
Um, and I probably could do with some counselling after that. So, yeah, I, I, I don't need to see two girls, one cup. I, I've seen the nuclear weapon of, uh, of that sort of thing. Okay, okay. So, sorry, what's Swap AVI? I'm not telling you. Are you, do you I've given you all the information that you <laughs> ever need. Off, off you go. Just don't, and, do, don't um, do it on a working machine, whatever you do. And I look forward to uh, to finding you hanging from a light fixture <laughs> sometime in the next 48 hours, I suspect. Well, I think that's enough crap, <laughs> literally, <laughs> literally, for this week. Um, now that Ed's back, we're back to the usual half an hour of shit. <laughs> uh, don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Bookmark AV Forums for the latest reviews, news and videos. Uh, plus, why not leave us a rating on iTunes if you enjoyed the show? Uh, so all I need to do is uh, thank tonight's contributors, uh, Steve Withers. Once again, that would have been useful information before we got married. Mark Portray. I've still got the spandex. Simon Cross. You think the time to make donuts guy is sexy. Mark Hodgkinson. He's gone. And Ed <laughs> Please get out of my Van Halen t-shirt before we jinx the band and they break up. I'm Phil Hinn, thanks very much for listening and come back again next week and we'll see you next Wednesday.